אתם מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשרס, רדיו קול רמה, 102.3 FM. שלום ובוקר לכולם, פרשת טוק, אני רבי אליאט מלמט, בהיילנד פארק, ניו ג'רזי, בהיילנד פארק קונסרטיבי טבל קונגרגיישן אנשי אמת. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Sheikh, the Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, and Sheikh Hesed in New York City. We are recording this uh, a day after the March for Israel in Washington, which we'll talk about in a minute. And we're recording it during a sad week for uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary. We're also, of course, you know, as we are, as we've been saying for the last several weeks, we're deeply mindful of the suffering of, of our brothers and sisters in Israel and the hostages and Israel now at war. Um, a little closer to home, the seminary noted the passing of three very important figures, um, Dr. Sam Klagsburn and Professor Avram Holtz and Professor uh, is, uh, Frankus, Israel Frankus. I well, just thought, thought we'd take a, a minute to talk about the three of them. Um, we, the three of us uh, encountered all of them during our time at the seminary, and, and these uh, individuals lived well into their 90s, and um, they have a tremendous legacy. And they've all shaped uh, generations of uh, students, rabbis, other scholars. And uh, we thought we'd give them, of course, a... Uh, A little bit of remembrance uh, uh barry i'll start with you and just uh think about them well i would start with uh dr klagsman um who i had most recently um i think in my one of my final years at the seminary he taught uh pastoral psychology or psychiatry whatever they called it then giving us pastoral lessons for our work in the field and one of the things i remember very clearly him saying is that um There were two kinds of patients that he would see. One was the person that had suffered tragedy periodically through life. And when that person would come to Dr. Klagsbrunn, his job was to un to locate the resources that the person had previously used, which could be difficult, but was a manageable proposition. It was much more difficult in the case of someone who had everything had gone right into their 40s or perhaps their 50s, and then something happened that took the The four out from under them um proverbially speaking and that person didn't necessarily have any identifiable resources upon which to build a recovery and so his work was perhaps more important in helping that person develop resources and you know that lesson was more than 30 years ago I still remember it almost as if I could see him in the class telling us interesting everybody come and ask anyone you want to remember you Well, um, I, I actually was, uh, I had a nice relationship with both Professor Holtz and, and Professor Frankis, although I wasn't in a classroom with either of them. But Professor Holtz and I, he, he was, a, a, among other things, a scholar of Shai Agnon, the Israeli writer. I'm, I'm also just a huge fan of Agnon. And uh, I remember in particular, this is one of Avram Holtz's major works. Uh, it was about, about a... as Agnon is want to, to do, like a very Kafka-esque, Agnon swore he never read Kafka, but it's obviously not true. Um, a Kafka-esque story about a, about a man who um, is trying desperately on a Shabbat to get pat shlema, a full loaf, a whole loaf to, to say a bracha 
uh, over for Mozi. He never gets it, and it's a, it's a symbol of how it is that that like a, just a well-intentioned person is dislocated from God, from Torah. And in that story, he has to develop, he has to deliver letters from a, a figure called Doctor Yekutiel Neeman. Yekutiel is one of Moshe's names. Neeman, Moshe's Neeman Mikobeto. So he's got to deliver the letter from Moshe, but he can't quite get get the job done. And it's just this kind of strange Kafka-esque story about the impossibility of like naive faith. Anyway, Professor Holtz wrote a lengthy uh, uh, work on that story, deciphering each rabbinic allusion. And he said something that I just, this is, I'm winding my way to this great comment of his that is, is a mashal patuach. It's like a lot of times, the the parable in a in a rabbinic story is like perfectly obvious, you know. Melech Basar Vadam, the the king of of uh, uh, human flesh and blood, is obviously a stand-in for the divine king. And Holt says about this that the, that the that the mashal is patuach. It's open-ended. It's not obvious. You have to carry it into ambiguity. And and I I I think that he'll. You know, I'll, I'll remember him for the for the equivocal, ambiguous way he read that equivocal story. I remember um, uh, Professor Holtz. I, I, I never had a class with him. He was a, an interesting personality in the, at the seminary, and of course, I know people who are much closer to him. And of course, uh, Clag, Sam Clasburn. You know, and I just remember him in class relating certain kinds of, you know, situations and helping us, helping shape the way we approach uh, this this whole area, which which obviously was new to us as we were thinking about it. And what is pastoral psychology? What does it mean to interact with, with a, a you know, a congregant? And he, he especially, he related um, a story of a woman who was dying of a terminal illness and and all of the the complexities relating to talking to people uh, at their end. And I, I think that that remained uh, with uh, me, with all of uh, the students, um, you know, these uh, approaching these moments with a degree of sensitivity that I think we, we need to have an empathy. I thought he, he was very thoughtful, had a sense of humor and um, was, was, accessible and then professor frankus you know an interesting life a survivor of the holocaust as a young boy came to america and um and became a great scholar and uh but but humble and of course my own memories of him not only in the classroom but uh, at minion every morning uh, Minion, whatever would be over, and he'd kind of dash out and go to the little store on between 121st and 122nd Street, pick up a New York Times and a cup of coffee, and and you know there was certain he, he was very habitual. He had a very very set regimen. I thought that that was pretty impressive, and he was a rigorous scholar. He had a tremendous sense of humor, but he was also very sharp sometimes. And he could he could put you where you needed to be put, and I'm sure, people, at least where he thought you needed. Exactly. To be put. Look, people, I remember, you know, also that just to give his scholarship, we spent a whole semester on one page of Talmud and one series of you know um, manuscripts and different you know versions of a, of a certain thing that that 
that had all sorts of implications in terms of the development of halakha was fascinating. And uh, it was a world. He, he, he lived in that world. He lived in the world of Talmud. He lived in the world of the commentaries, uh, the medieval commentaries, and that, that was alive to him. They were people that he talked to. So we 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 remember them, Yehizikram Baruch, may their memories be a blessing, and the inspiration that they gave to generations of scholars, may that live on as well. We are also a day after the rally in Washington, and, and it behooves us as three guys who were there, but we didn't get to see each other. <laughs> we were texting, and well, we, we the phone died. There was no service there. There were 300,000 people there, 200, whatever the number is. It definitely was, you know, a lot of people. Uh, and I was somewhere opposite the Smithsonian. Jeremy, you were somewhere wherever. I don't, wherever. Know. I don't know where I was. But yeah. I, and I spoke to a friend who got closer, David, David Rosen got closer. He said... I was closer to the other Jumbotron. You were closer to a different Jumbotron. Exactly. I was close to one on the other side. Uh, and uh, and Barry, you were, you were already, you were with the I team. was pretty close to the front. Couldn't yeah. quite see the stage, but um, we were very close. We got there, I think, about 1030 for the youth program at 11. And it was amazing to me how quickly the mall filled in. And you forget when you're standing there how hard it is to see how far back and you can see, of course, the Washington Monument, but most people are not quite that tall. And so people were doing all sorts of funny things to get pictures of the vastness of the crowd. And it was really an impressive sight. But you know, because because there's a, an alum of Solomon Schechter Day School, Long Island, Barry, who is held as a hostage, um, do you have anything to say about, like, it, it hits everything hits home to all of us, and some of us have you know, one gener- one degree of separation or two degrees of separation. We have a, you know, a cousin who or whatever, but all of your kids are probably many of your kids. at that Right. Same, well, many people had special T-shirts for Omer, um, you know, instructing the powers that be to bring him home, to send him home so that uh, he could be reuni- reunited with his family. And his mother, Orna Nutra, spoke quite uh, powerfully um, unfortunately, I've had occasion to hear her speak more than once, but she delivers a very important and focused message, and I think one that resonates with a lot of people. And I have to say, so we're we had two buses of people from our school, and of course, other members of our community went with their synagogue. So there's a good representation from the school, but it's very special when you actually know one of the people who's speaking. You know, we're used to public figures from whom most of us do not have close connections, but here was someone that we've known for years. It was something to see uh, Natan Sharansky uh, because it it uh, touches another moment in Jewish history, and, and that that is to say, American Jewish history, where I, I think the number is two hundred fifty thousand gathered together in nineteen eighty seven. Uh, for a similar rally, I want to share just one one thought with with everyone, and and um, which is that so here we had three hundred thousand people, which is uh, what four or five percent of the Jewish population in America. Let's say it. I mean, it's 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 more than one, less than ten. It's you know Jews from all over the country came, um, signage from all over the country. And um, this is what the Jewish people looks like. 
And I, I get, you know, it's magmoret. I get a little goose flesh thinking. You know, we, we, we were in the moment where we could touch peoplehood. And, you know, the, as we all know, speakers, there are speakers that are more passionate, speakers that are more effective, speak, you know, they get, they get scored by everybody and, and our own scores and, and all of that. And we all have our, our you know, favorite moments, of course. But uh, I, what I'm going away with, this is now a day after, in addition to fatigue, is, um, wow, there was something to be there with 300,000 Jews. It's, you know, to think about it, to think that, that here is, you know, a, a pulse of the, a pulse of the American Jewish community, a pulse of, you know, some things. It's like, we're trying to to coalesce and trying to condense a certain kind of energy core here in a moment where everybody's kind of they were saying three things and I think there was clarity on the message supporting Israel, the idea of bringing home the hostages, and anti-Semitism, and and to not see that that there all three of these are related now and that all of threes are vital. They're vital to our our survival. They're vital to the the this moment, this moment. And that's why I think this 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 rally, I think, is going to be a you know, by by sheer numbers, it's already a historic moment, but it will go down in the same uh sentence as the previous rally. That uh so, I think it's very moment. important to stand up and be counted. Yeah. I would have preferred to be able to sit for part of it, though. <laughs> um, but I, I think what you said is is exactly correct, because this was a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime moment, and um, you had to decide whether to go or not. And I happened to run into a classmate of mine at JTS, who I probably haven't seen in 30 years, who came from California with his school, yeah. and they flew in that day, were flying out at 3 o'clock or so in the afternoon. And that was very impressive that someone would interrupt, in his case, his life and that of his students to be someplace for a couple of hours. That's how important a, an event it was. Yeah. So I feel, um, first of all, I'm very glad to stand up and be counted. And and uh, I am always the person who's going to say, when, when people say, now is the time you know, to rally the flag and now is not the time for nuance, I'm never going to be that person. I'm always going to be the person who thinks that nuance and subtlety is, is an indispensable part of the conversation. And rallies are not good for that. Rallies are not, that's not what it's about. So I'm, I'm do not mind for a second that, uh, that it's kind of a, a crude, you know, with us or against us kind of thing. I think it was called for. And I, I think we're also standing at a moment here in, in late 2023 when there's just different, there's, there's, there remains a wide variety among loyal Jews about um, their attitudes towards the war, their attitudes towards Israel, their attitude towards you know the policies of a, of a ceasefire or humanitarian pause or continual. There's going to be a lot of different views. I saw some shirts and some signs that I thought were repulsive um, and that I found very uncomfortable. I don't mind. Yesterday was fine because that's what it was about. But I didn't like seeing the Kahana t-shirts I saw, which I saw. I didn't like seeing this. It was one guy with a t-shirt that says Nikama, vengeance. I didn't like, I didn't like, I didn't like seeing that. And, and I've had a number of conversations with, um, 
you know, younger people in, in my kahal who either they are no longer struggling to find their loyalty to, to the state of Israel or they're, or they're struggling mightily. You know, some of them have given up on that one. Um, and as we talked before, before uh, we started recording, you know, it's like it's not easy to see the enormous suffering of the Palestinian people, especially Palestinian children. And and I would hope, and I Deborah Messing said this, the second, the cousin of the, the person who spoke between Orna Nutra and Rachel Goldberg, I forget her name, her, she was the cousin of some hostages. Um, she said, like, huh? What's her, her last name is Zajic. Zajic. Um, I thought she spoke beautifully and said, you don't have to choose between, you know, in fact, you shouldn't choose between, you know, valuing some lives and other lives, but this is unambiguous. Hostages, you know, we, we all know in New York, or maybe it was where you guys live too, um, the, host, the, the Free the Hostage posters are getting torn down by people who, like, and somebody put up a sign, a very good sign. There's an empty storefront where there's lots of kidnapped posters. Posters come down. They put up new new posters. The posters come down. Somebody put up a sign that says, "Tearing down the posters of kidnapped victims does not make you pro-Palestinian. It just makes you an inhuman idiot." And I thought yeah. that's exactly right. Well, I put a sign on my lawn that I stand with Israel got stolen. So <laughs> my my so what we're saying is that that here I want to you know this this proposition for us to to kind of discuss for a minute is that. This was the complexion of the Jewish people now, and 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 that in the three hundred thousand Jews present, of which any of us could see maybe you know five to ten thousand in any given moment, um, you know you saw different kinds of faces, different different backgrounds, different geographies, different religious you know presentation. Um, this is what we look like, and there even was a, a shirt that said, "This is what a Zionist looks like." You know, and and uh, you know, the point is, I'm a Zionist, and and I'm proud of it. Or the point is that I want to show you that I'm just like you, or I am American. I am, I belong here. And and you have an issue with that, so talk to me about that, or 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 lay off, basically. I mean, there's there's plenty of that, also. And and I think yeah. that that the these definitions of peoplehood. We're we're seeing in real time how there's a slight change or a slight, you know, the the evolution of Jewish peoplehood is is really changing before our very eyes. I think. I th you know, I, one of the things that I noticed, and and of course you're you're right. At any point, we happen to be seeing who we're standing next to. Um, uh, Barry, I, you know, I was there with my daughter-in-law, who was a, an alum of your school, and she and and Ira and Sherry, are, my my name came over also, and they had the Omer Nutra T-shirts. Um, I was also sitting next to Benosia Sroel of Baltimore. These these yeshiva girls with the uh, skirts to the floor and sleeves, and and I thought, hmm, I'm gonna guess that in previous iterations, a I don't know that it's a Beis Yaakov school, but it's a Beis Yaakov-like school uh, would have brought the Medlach out into this crazy atmosphere. I think that people, I'm, I'm thinking that they may feel a uh, an urgency to this particular thing. And boy, oh boy, I can only say that redemption is at hand because so many Jews got to fill and put on them by Chabad yesterday. There you go. There you oh, go. it's it's like 
with all of those to fill in, how can redemption not be at hand? Well, well was it Rashi or Rabbeinu Tam? Ah, uh, see, that's the question. Okay, well, you know, uh, so so good on them that they put out their tables, and the OU put out their tables, and, uh, you know, uh, we didn't have a table, the Masorti United Synagogue, I didn't see a USCJ table, so for the next rally, uh, note to whatever, let's, you know, but uh, let's let's do some Torah here. Let's talk about the parsha. Toldot uh, now puts us into the life of Yitzchak and puts us into uh, two formative stories. The first story where uh, Yaakov and Esav they're born and they quickly grow up. They grow up over the the, court, the space of a few verses, and we learn that Esav is a hunter and Yaakov is a person who sits at home all day. Uh, who would you like as your child? <laughs> okay, I'll start with that. <laughs> well, as a Yaakov, I would take Yaakov. Awesome. Me too. too um, Yaakov. He's always been my personal hero of the patriarchs. And um, he's a little more than a stay-at-home type, I think. He, I see him more as a contemplative person. And, um, you know, I, I had my uh, various uh, interactions with sports both organized and disorganized um but i see myself more as a contemplative home dweller especially as i get older um than a man of action who lives in the field mm -hmm. but i want to draw our attention to the very first verse because i think what the parsha is really about is identity formation and how we see ourselves and how we see others and um, it's very easy both in this parsha and in the Torah to gloss over Isaac pretty quickly. So the first verse says, These are the generations of Yitzchak, the son of Abraham. Abraham sired Yitzchak. And Rashi asks the question, of course, why does the Torah have to repeat after it described Isaac as the son of Abraham, that Abraham was the father of Isaac? And you remember from the previous story, when um, Isaac was, uh, when Abraham was uh, involved, and there are two stories of this uh, with Paro and Avimelech, that the scoffers, whom Jews even back then seemed to attract, were denigrating Sarah for having slept with someone not her husband. And the response, the divine response, was for Isaac to look exactly like Abraham. And when we think of the psychology of Isaac, one wonders how this Midrash speaks to that, because it cannot necessarily be entirely helpful to look exactly like your father. It doesn't necessarily leave room for growth. So already at the beginning, even before we get to the Akedah, at least in the Midrashic mind, Isaac is somewhat uh, handicapped. So... So it, it does prompt a whole discussion of how uh, differentiated we are from from our, our our fathers. We are three men here. We've been criticized for being that on this uh, po podcast. <laughs> so, uh, we can't help it. Okay, uh, but but we all we all have similarities and differences to our our fathers. I, I I'm laughing only because. Uh, my mother's a big fan of the show, and she'll enjoy me saying that I I, I was a lot like my father. Uh, I am a lot, or uh, my, you know, may he rest in peace. And and um, 
and I, I don't I don't mind that at all. It's like, uh, the older I get, I don't mind that at all. <laughs> I think it's something that you grow into. Coincidentally, my father and I shared the same sun sign. He was born on November 13th and I on November 1st. Yeah. And as was my custom when I was younger, I read the horoscope every day. And of course, it said the same thing about me as it did my father. But there you go. <laughs> how could that be? Right. Um, but as I grew older, I realized how much like my father I was. Yeah. So, so, but, but I want to say that, that there's quite a lot that's different from Yitzchak to Avraham. And, in, in, in this, in the way that, A, I think they, they, they have different relationships with their wives. Uh, I think they have different relationships with God. I think they have different relationships with their children. Um, and, um, uh, and, and I, I, I'm going to kind of leave it, Leave the dot 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 there, and get Jeremy kind of weigh in on this. And you know, do you think, in terms of his differentiation, in terms of his identity, in terms of Isaac as a father, in terms of, uh, or anywhere you want to go with this? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before. I, I think, uh, not that I saw all of succession, but uh, he's like he's he's like one of those Roy children who can't. <laughs> ever get uh ever get the approval be i mean listen i my favorite of the of the ancestral figures is rebecca i think she's just an amazingly powerful figure and and i think that uh the passivity the relative passivity i mean i you don't have to be mean to poor isaac he's he's the if each of the if each of the ancestral figures has to make the hero's journey has to leave the land has to return to the land um, that happens to Abraham, it happens to Jacob, it happens to Rebecca, it does not happen to Isaac. I think that it's at some level the Torah's conveying that uh, he's not up to the hero's journey. And there are good things about him. I'm not busting on Yitzhak Avinu. Um, I, I think that the blessings that he gives are poetic, you know, just poetically lovely. But um, But I think, you know, I think that that aside from whatever trauma the Akedah left him met with, which would be perfectly understandable under any sort of circumstances, he's not the guy who God said, let's make a breach. Um, uh, and, his, and he's not the, you know, outsized personality that, that is his son. Um, he's a blind guy who likes, you know, who likes roasted, roasted antelope. Uh, uh, let me just explore for a second, okay? So he is uh, 37 years old when his mother dies because she's 127 uh, uh, and he gives him at the age of 90. So he's 37 years old. He's 40 when he marries Rebecca. And we learn at the you know last week's Parsha that he was comforted in that marriage, whatever that means. No, at the end of this Parsha. At in the end of last week's Parsha, sorry. That, that when oh, he married right, Rebecca, right, 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 him, okay? Right. And then, and then, um, and then a the child born, the children born to them happen when he's 60. So the question I ask you is, is at what point does he learn that she cannot give birth? And what, how does he deal with it? The, the text seems to gloss over this. So what I'm proposing here is that there's 20 years of, of childlessness there that, that he has to contend with. And that when it says here, right? That he's praying for that that the two of them or that he in particular where the vote versus focused on 
he has he he is he's he has anguish. There's anguish for sure, in childlessness for, sure for 20 years, and then he prays, and then it you know it it tells us okay, finally she she's she she has pregnancy and a pregnancy that is quite difficult. Um, uh, one of the things I love about Rebecca in that passage, first of all, I want to I want to you know reinforce and agree with with Barry's comment about the identity formation. Um, she gets pregnant and she has the, the two children struggle in her womb and they make a little play that they were ratzim, they were running that when they would walk by Abu Dazara, they'd walk by some idolatrous terrible thing he, he spastically tries to get out and, and then when they would walk by the yeshiva of Shem and Eber the, the mythic uh, study house, then Yaakov Mifarkes, let's say, he, he would try to get out because they were just, they just had this magnetic pull to badness or goodness or stupidity or wisdom, which of course doesn't really, um, you know, it doesn't entirely sit right with, with, uh, well, that's because uh, they're kicking. That's why it doesn't sit. Right. <laughs> it, do- it doesn't sit right with people to think that like Esau was just destined for rottenness and Yaakov just destined for greatness. But I, I do think that, you know, we do see, that uh, that people and and by the way, and I love this about Rebecca. Vatelechli Droshet Adunai. She goes, you know, she's she's not a passive character at all. It is true that Isaac has to pray on her behalf. Why couldn't she pray on her own behalf? But um, she inquires to have her own independent oracle from God, which I just think is like in in many ways <laughs> you could say the Bible's women that they have power, they have sort of subtle power, they have between the lines power, they can manipulate. Rebecca is just straight up, and she's a matriarch to go with all the patriarchs. She's she's in charge, she's wise, she's directed, she's a true heroine. So, well, in order to leave, she's got to, you know, break a boundary also. She's got to go outside of her home. And, you know, there was a beautiful Rashi on this, which is she goes to speak to Avraham, right? That Avraham is still alive at the time, and... Um, has you know this he is wise and she speaks to him and of course there are others who say no she went to speak to an oracle or went to speak to um a prophet um and uh whoever that that could have been uh barry so uh, i wanted to say i guess two things in defense of yitzchak and in a way what the parsha this week suggests is that yitzchak makes up for perhaps a failing in avraham when Avraham experienced the the famine in Canaan, he did not think anything of leaving the land that God had promised him to go to Egypt, which, as we know, is not the promised land. When the famine recurs during Isaac's life, God speaks to Isaac to make sure that he doesn't leave the land. Now, we can see this as a kind of passive approach, perhaps, that Isaac doesn't act for himself. He only follows God's command. But on the other hand, it's important that one patriarch remain eternally attached to the land. And I think that's a Zahuda merit of Isaac, that he is that patriarch. The other thing I would say is drawing attention to the the praying on behalf of Rebecca, also in Rashi, is this idea that God answered Isaac's prayer before Rebecca's prayer because Isaac was the son of a tzaddik. So in this way, because he was like his father, Abraham, at least according to one Midrashic reading, his prayer was answered 
because Rebecca suffered from being a righteous person, but the daughter of someone perceived to be a wicked person. Wicked person, interesting. I'd like to just end with with your comment on on um, the passage that you mentioned, Gur Ba'aretz Azot, in chapter twenty six, where God, you know, does say specifically to him. Don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land. That I tell you, dwell in this land. I'm sorry, which is very, very strong coded language. I will be with you. I will be with you, which is again echoes for us with Abraham and certainly later on as well with uh, Moses. Um, and the um, Avarcheka. Uh, I will bless you because I'm giving you all these lands. I will uphold the oath that I made to your father. So here it's being declared, you're going to stay in the land because the land was promised to your father. I will reproduce you like the stars of the heavens. I'll give your generations all these lands because and you and through you all of the nations of the world will be blessed again so it's a, a reiteration give me one, give me one more yeah one okay so because god because abraham heard my voice who so, so abraham yes so you, you should stay here i'm going to bless you you know why man your father was good how 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 psychologically uh what, what a psychological burden god says to you i'm with you i'll be with you i'll sustain you i'll expand you because you have great yichus like that's gotta be i don't mind be, that oh, come on it's <laughs> gotta be hard no you know i i think at this point he he has a well, you know, Barry, I'll put this to you. Identity formation. Has his identity been formed? Is he is he okay with that? Can you come to terms at the age of 60 that you're who you are and and it's okay? You're no more you're no longer so, fighting father. Okay. <laughs> it, the rest of the parsha suggests that perhaps he does not live up to his potential because the son that he loves is not, not the son that he finds himself able to bless until he is practically begged by a weeping Esau yeah. to provide one more blessing after he's already given the family jewel, so to speak, to Jacob. And yeah. we have to ask ourselves, of course, why did this happen? And I think I mentioned this last year, one of my favorite presentations I have to say is that Isaac is betrayed by every sense. He doesn't hear well, he doesn't see well, he doesn't smell well, he doesn't touch well, he doesn't taste well. So at the very end, he is living in a world with no sense. I don't want to go so far as to say it's nonsense, but it's not a world that he could be entirely comfortable in because it's unreliable. Right? We use our senses to create reliability in the world that we live in. Well, and uh, yeah. what we're left with at the very end is what he's able to do after he blesses Esau is that he gives Isaac, Jacob one more blessing. Yeah. And that's a repudiation of Esau, the son that he loved. But in this Parsha, Isaac only loves three things. Well, one, Rivka was from last week, his wife. This week, he loves Esau, and he loves 
Syed, the game meat that Esau is supposed to bring. The one thing he doesn't love is Yaakov. Interesting. And I think that's perhaps a problem. Jeremy, I'm going to give you the last word here because I just... Um, dis- <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I... You can I, say I, I may. I, I, do, I do agree broadly. I think that the blindness is not accidental. Um, uh, I think the blindness says something, and I think it contrasts with Rivka's vision. But one thing I would say about this passage and the heartbreaking presentation of Aesop's tears is that the Torah, you know, in its great artistry, like anybody who ever read this story already knows that they're B'nai Yisrael, they're B'nai Yaakov. We're on Yaakov's team and he's our guy and we want our guy to win. So anybody who ever reads the story the first time knows that Aesop is supposed to lose and we want him to lose. And yet, instead of just, you know, Esav gets up and he eats and he eats and he drinks and he gets up and he and he spurns the birthright. That's like just purely negative, as and and deservedly so. Esav is simply not leadership material. He cannot inherit Abraham's people. That part is right. He has to be. He has to be set aside. But the Torah instead, rather than just smacking him in the face and saying, "Look at what a, look at what a dope," the Torah opens up our hearts to cry along with Esav. Have you but one blessing in your house, Father? Don't didn't you reserve anything for me? We just we feel with the guy. We we feel with his pain of rejection, and I just think that that's part of the beautiful artistry of Absolutely. this amazing passage. Well said. I can give one sentence of love to Isaac, and that I, he he's trying his best. <laughs> and Elliot, let's share with the. I'm not sure. It's your name, <laughs> This is Elliot struggling for love. There you go. So, so we get two Yaakovs here against the Yitzchak. There you go. Very good. Okay. And with that, we're gonna we're gonna end our little parsha talk. We thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Really, really appreciate you spending time with us. Look forward to seeing you again next week. In the meantime, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bye bye.